Hey, Sisu Squad. Welcome to It's All in My Head, a podcast about people and their relationships with mental health. I'm your host, Joel Kaskinen. Before we begin, I want to share a content warning. It's All in My Head references mature themes, including suicide, sex, drugs, and alcohol, and contains language that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Discretion is advised. Hey, Sisu Squad, we are back with another episode of It's All in My Head. I am here with Jesse Mangan, um, a friend of mine via Twitter and social media. Uh, we love how the internet uh, connects us and um, we get to make new friends and meet new people and build communities in fun spaces. So, um, Jesse, if you would mind, wouldn't mind um, introducing yourself to my listeners and just sharing a little bit about yourself and then we'll jump into our conversation. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. My name is Jesse Mangan and I produce a podcast called Committable that focuses on broadly mental health laws and systems of mental health, particularly within the U.S. And uh, there's a whole lot of other aspects to me and about me, but I'm sure we'll get into that. Great. All right. Well, like you said, uh, you do host a podcast kind of focusing on mental health systems. Obviously, this is a mental health community building podcast. So let's just start with the basics. What is your relationship to mental health and where are you at today in your journey? Yeah, I I knew this question was coming and it's still really hard to answer because I don't really understand mental health as an individual separate thing. So when people talk to me about mental health, it's hard to separate that from like your your basic needs or from physical health or from your situation environment. So mm -hmm. I think often when specifically thinking about the aspects of mental health that get identified as mental health within our culture generally, uh, I think I first started becoming aware of those things when I was about seven years old. I had uh, gone to a gymnastics camp. It was a, it was a day camp. It was a thing that parents sent their kids to during the summer. I was there, it was about, about a week. At some point in that week, uh, I, was, I was a little overweight as a kid. I was a little chubby, I was seven. Um, and some other campers challenged me to a headstand contest. I was very excited about it. I was very proud of my headstands. So, uh, I get engaged in this headstand contest and my shirt falls down because I'm upside down. My shirt falls down and I win the contest, but the other kids just ridicule me for having a chubby chest. And on the way from the gym to the cafeteria that day, at some point along the walk, uh, it was a wooded area, at some point along the walk, I just felt my world closing in and it was the first time I'd ever had a, a panic attack. And when you first sure. have that experience, you don't know if you're ever going to be able to breathe again. You don't know what it is. You don't have words for it. You just feel everything collapsing. And so I collapsed against a tree and I was just really lucky to have some counselor there who knew enough to 
like get down on my level, just start breathing so I could copy their breathing and talking to me and, and sort of talking me through it. So I get through that experience and I didn't really know to ask whether or not this was normal. I just mm. thought like, well, I survived that, so it must be okay. And from that point on, I started to experience or be, be more conscious of some real sort of acute anxiety moments. And again, I just kept thinking like, no one's telling me this isn't normal. So I'm going to assume everyone goes through life this way, just having moments where you feel debilitated by social interactions. Um, by the time I was about nine, my physician told me that I was overweight. And if I didn't start dieting, I would, uh, I believe he said I would be on the fast track to obesity. And he made it sound really scary mm -hmm. that this, this could be life-threatening. So by the age of nine, I started, uh, I started skipping meals. I started um, doing some intense dieting, just eating a lot less. I lost uh, 20 pounds within a couple months as like a nine-year-old and I got a lot of attention for it a lot of uh credit a lot of positive reinforcement so I thought this is it this is this is who I am this is my identity yeah. so for the next maybe eight nine years um that was a huge part of my identity I was uh obsessively doing push-ups and sit-ups every day and I thought that meant I was healthy there was a point when I was like 16 where I was in the family like living room. Everyone's watching TV and I am like obsessively doing crunches to the point where I'm crying and I'm crying in front of my family and no one says anything. And years later, I asked my brother about it. And he said, we just thought you were really into fitness. Um, so that continues to escalate for years where I go through all of the usual challenges of life, especially young life, adolescent life. And the constant, the thing that I always fall back on is, this is the thing that worked for me. This is the thing that people told me I was good at, was exercise, push-ups, sit-ups, things, things like that. Um, at the highest point, it was like, the highest point, it was 2,400 sit-ups a day and then I was doing various amounts of push-ups wow. and I reached a point where I left home to go to college. I took a year off sort of as a default. Um, I tried to get into art school and didn't and so then just spent, took a year off but then didn't then I got into school the next year and I was on my own. I was sort of hopping around to various family members staying in my aunt's for two nights a week, staying with my grandmother for two nights a week as I tried to pay my way through my first year of school. And during that year, uh, you know, I felt everything sort of eluding me. I felt like things were far more complicated than I realized. And I was trying to create structure for my life. So I kept leaning into the regime and the rigidity of an organized exercise schedule and that led to um, me losing more weight i wasn't really expecting to it wasn't my plan um 
and gradual weight loss, like when you lose, I lost 30 pounds over like eight months and it's not something you notice right away. It's, it's just so gradual, you get used to it every little bit by bit, or at least I did. But I, I knew something was wrong. So in my second year of school, uh, I knew something was wrong. I was having trouble sleeping. I was having trouble concentrating. Um, I felt cold all the time. And so I went to a, a billboard just to see what sort of information was there. And at this point, my parents were like strongly urging me to seek some sort of help because sure. in their eyes, there was this visible weight loss and they couldn't explain it. And I didn't really think it was a problem. Uh, so I go to a billboard on, on campus and there's a, a pamphlet there. And it's like a pamphlet you pick up and you check a bunch of boxes. And so I, I pick up the pamphlet, I check all the boxes. And at the end, you tally it up. And it said, you probably have an eating disorder. And I was like, well, I don't know what that is, but okay. And there on the billboard was a announcement about a, an eating disorder support group on campus. So I was like, well, I, this, seems, this seems simple enough. I have an eating disorder support group. I'll go there. So I showed up at the support group and uh, some, uh, some guy, I think he was a graduate student, probably in his mid to late 20s, answers the door. And he says he can't let me into the support group because I'm a man and, and my gender would be intimidating to the people in the group, which oh, wow. I think is a valid approach to a group if you're clear about it and you understand uh, how to respond. Yeah, yeah. So this guy said, I can't come in, but he gave me no alternatives. He didn't say you should go here and talk to this person or you should... Uh, go to health services or whatever. It was just, you can't come in, goodbye. And so I thought, well, if a leader of a support group says I can't come in, but doesn't seem to think I look bad enough that I have to go somewhere else, then things must be okay. So I waited about a week or so. Things kept feeling weird, trouble sleeping, feeling cold all the time, trouble concentrating. So I went to health services to make an appointment with a nutritionist. Um, it was at 9 a.m. Uh, on a Wednesday, and within 15 minutes of meeting with that nutritionist, I, I'm, I'm crying, like everything is coming out because I just feel so overwhelmed and I don't know what to do about it. So the nutritionist gets a physician, the physician does a quick intake, and tells me uh, my weight is so low that I will die if I move too much, which to be clear was not true. And I don't say that as like an opinion. I say that as having looked into this thoroughly and talked to other psychiatrists. I spoke to a psychiatrist in the UK who did his dissertation on men with eating disorders, oh, okay. uh, particularly anorexia. And when I told him my height, weight, and BMI when I was, when this physician first uh, spoke to me, he laughed because he was like, no, you weren't, you, you needed help, but you weren't at like crisis level. You need to go somewhere help. Um, so the physician gets really nervous. She tells me that she had a patient who was, who had anorexia, who died, and she's really worried about it. So she has me talk to a psychologist. I talked to the psychologist and the psychologist is like, yeah, you need to go to a hospital. I was like, that sounds great. Someone just told me I'm going to die. So why don't we get me to a hospital? Yeah. Um, a psychologist asked if I want my parents involved. 
I say, yes. I'm, I'm 19 at that point. So I'm like, yeah, bring, bring my parents. Sounds great. Uh, I talk with my parents, the psychologist on the phone with us. We're doing a conference call. We're all talking. We're all on the same page. It's like, yeah, a physician just said he could, he could die. So why don't we get him to a hospital? Um, and so I then end up spending eight hours in university health services, never being brought food, never being really told what's going on, just kept in some room in the back waiting for someone to do something because I'm told we can't find you a bed at a hospital. And I feel like, well, that seems weird if you're telling me I'm going to die. I feel like that's usually how you get into a hospital. Um, so after about eight hours, and at some point during that, my brother had come because he was in the area. He had the day off of work, and he's my older brother. And he was like, I'll just give you a ride. They just tell us which hospital. I'll give you a ride there. So he's waiting with me. Um, at some point, the psychologist comes into this room we're waiting in, and he says, uh, "You know, I need you to come out to the hallway. So my brother and I go out into the hallway, and there are these two EMTs with a gurney. And the psychologist says, you need to be strapped into the gurney. And I was like, well, why? And he says, that's oh, for insurance reasons. Don't worry about it. You're just, just to get you a ride to the hospital. It's an insurance thing. So like not really understanding my brother and I were like, all right, well, my brother will follow the ambulance, I guess. Uh, and so they strap me in. And while I'm strapped into this gurney, there's a, a dissonance going on and Throughout this whole day, it's just been this roller coaster of the shock of being told you might die and realizing that when I first started talking to that nutritionist, all of these emotions were coming out. So clearly this is about more than me just changing my diet, but I don't know how to do that. So I'm just asking for help. And then being told you need to go to the hospital, I'm thinking, okay, this, this answers questions. I, I thought something was wrong. You're telling me I need to go somewhere okay, there's a sense to that. So for those eight hours, there's a sort of calm because I'm thinking someone has answers. Someone knows what's supposed to happen and all I have to do is trust them. It feels weird. It feels wrong. Sure, I'm nervous and I'm scared, but all I have to do is trust them. So I'm at the point where I'm strapped into this gurney. I don't understand it. I'm being transported to a facility. They will not tell us which facility. Uh, the EMT is filling out some form, which I know now was a form to have me uh, kept in a locked ward. Uh, and he's asking me all these questions so he can fill out the form. And I'm trying to be polite while I know that being having your full body strapped in an ambulance being brought to an unnamed facility is not normal or right like it just it feels yeah. wrong yeah. so we arrive at the hospital the emts don't bring me to an er they bring me straight onto uh, an elevator without telling me where we're going then wheel me because they like on the on the gurney they kind of move it upright and wheel me into a psych ward uh unstrap me and then leave and i'm just in the middle of a psych ward like wow. okay what now then um a nurse comes up to me and says, 
I need to take your belt and anything else that you feel unsafe with. And I thought it was a joke. I, I didn't understand. I didn't know where I was or what was happening. So I was like, what, do you mean like my shoelaces? And she says, yeah, I need to take your shoelaces. And at that point, like all of the trust that had got me to that point just fell apart. Yeah. And um, she brought me over to a, a room with a a camera and a locked bathroom and said I'd be staying there. And um, the there was a sort of break in that moment because I knew I knew I couldn't trust the people I'd been working with, but I didn't know who to trust because I was being told I couldn't trust myself either. So I was left in this sort of undefined space where I didn't know what to do. And the the unusual aspect of that story, because a lot of that is not that unusual for most people who end up being involuntarily detained. Um, the unusual usual aspect is that my father worked in that field. So he figured out what had happened. And when I got to the psych ward, they told me, you have to sign this form. And if you sign this form, the the soonest you'll be able to leave is Monday, because it was a Wednesday. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, just bring me to a doctor so they can evaluate me. And they told me there's no doctor around. It's a Wednesday evening. Um, and so my father knew enough about the system that he showed up. And I don't know how he did this. He I think it's because he he knew people at the hospital. He's able to get onto the, lo the locked ward after hours, find the person in charge, and explain the situation to them in in no unclear terms, saying like, the, he, there was there was no uh, risk of uh, harm to self or others. Like this was not a a valid. It's called the Section Twelve in Massachusetts. This was not a valid Section Twelve, which is true. The, the the psychiatrist who they eventually found, who was on call at the hospital, looked at all the paperwork and said, "Like, yeah, this doesn't make any sense. I don't know why you were sent here." So, I was able to get out, but I was still thoroughly confused. So, the next, and I go back to my home to my parents' house. The next morning, I don't know what else to do, so I go back to health services with my brother. And I, I tell the physician who I'd spoken to, I'm still worried that I'm going to die. So if that's true, please put me into a hospital um, a, like a, for medical observation. And at that point, they were worried about a lawsuit because it was clear that the psychologist uh, skirted some rules. Years later, there was a lawsuit about it. And the psychologist admitted that he didn't think I was suicidal. He just... He didn't trust my brother to give me a ride to the hospital. So his answer to that was to have EMTs strap me down and bring me to a locked ward. Yeah. Uh, the EMTs don't really have a choice when they're they're given those forms and told like this yeah. person's being yeah. section 12. They're like, this is what we do. Um, so they were worried about a lawsuit. I get into a hospital. I'm there for a week out of classes. Uh, they're supposed to be monitoring my weight and the whole point i am told for me being in this hospital is for me to gain weight the nutritionist screws up the intake and acts i don't know if it was accidental it was just it was a it was a mistake 
I had never counted calories before that day. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to help anyone do it. The nutritionist screws up and estimates that I was taking in about half as many calories per day as I actually had been. So in my during my time for about a week in the hospital, I actually lost weight. I was there eating everything they brought me and following their plans, but they screwed up the plan. And so by the end of that week, uh, the doctor in charge comes in and is like, we're going to release you to your home, to your parents' home, even though I'm now a lower weight. It doesn't make any sense. Um, but you can't leave your parents' home. You can't even leave your parents' yard without permission. And if you do, like, we might send you back to the hospital uh, and you can't attend classes and you you can't engage in any physical activity because we're still worried about you. All we want you to do is to go to your parents' house and do nothing but think about food and gaining weight, which is the worst thing you can tell someone with an eating disorder. It's like, yeah. do nothing but think about food and weight. Um, and they didn't want to count calories anymore, so they taught me how to do it. They taught me how to count calories and told me from that point on I had to like meticulously count every calorie I ate and I'd never done it before. So now I'm and and they there is this um there's a standard approach when you're doing refeeding with anorexia where often you have to be worried about sort of overwhelming the body so there will be a sort of gradual increase in calories. You don't mm -hmm. throw a whole bunch of calories at someone at once. So there is a sort of logic to that. But they weren't experienced with eating disorders. So the way they interpreted that, that logic was to give me a cap. They're like, we want you to eat this many calories as a minimum, minimum, but don't eat more than this many calories as a maximum because we're worried about overwhelming your heart. And uh, they told me I had to gain X amount of weight within the next week or else I wouldn't be allowed back in classes. In hindsight, I can say with like absolute certainty, the plan that they put me on made it like biologically impossible to gain any amount of weight, never mind the like nine to 10 pounds they expected me to gain in a week. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's there's no way that plan was ever going to work. So the plan fails. I'm at the same weight a week later, and it sort of creates this um, this rift because the clinicians are worried about a lawsuit and they want my parents to con commit me. They actually like at one point, m me and my parents were meeting with some of the clinicians. I left the room for a second and they tried to take my parents aside and they said, just convince him to commit himself. That's the best thing you can do. Just convince him to commit himself. Um, but my parents don't know what to do. They no parent can be prepared for a situation like this. Like, uh, I, I don't know. I will never know what it's like to be told your son is dying. They're, they're, they're starving to death and we don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what that's like as a parent. It's just frightening. So they don't know what to do and they don't know how to trust the clinicians because the clinicians are just making mistakes left and right. And it's, I'm just, I'm still not clear why this many mistakes happened. Um, and the person sort of left in the middle is me. And I'm 
I'm being blamed by both sides because everyone's looking for an answer and the only person being held responsible for the situation is me. So uh, I'm, I'm forced out of school, forced to get a medical withdrawal. And then my, my parents are confused and just, and blame me for it. Um, so now after being independent and like paying for college myself and having left my parents' house, I'm now back at my parents' house with nothing to do but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, focus on food, counting calories and gaining weight because that's what my, that's what the clinic, clinical team has told me to do. And I reached the point within three months where I couldn't make sense of reality anymore. And I, it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't know if it was disassociative. I don't, it wasn't psychosis, but it was a point where the things I was doing didn't make sense to me, but I didn't know how to stop doing them. And I didn't know how to change the situation because no one around me was giving me an avenue out. And that sort of feeling of helplessness and the feeling of I can't trust myself and I also can't trust anyone else around me just left me in a sort of, um, I guess, like a limbo state mentally where yeah, I'm sure I didn't know how to I didn't know how to get out of it or, or move past it. So I just focused on every day you calculate calories and you count calories because that's what you've been told to do. And things just got worse and worse and worse from there. Um, so that's the short version of how it all started. Um, from there, I, um, <clears throat> I voluntarily admitted myself to uh, an eating disorder program. Um, but once, once you reach a certain weight, you insurance stops paying. So I left that. Um, I moved away from home a couple times. Uh, I ended up in Oakland. I was a tutor in, I was with an AmeriCorps program. I was a tutor in an eighth grade class. Uh, I was assaulted uh, a couple times. And then I witnessed a teacher in the school violently assault a student. And uh, I was the only person who tried to report it. And after I reported it, uh, like other teachers actually pulled me out of the classroom I was in and said, you know, he's really a good guy. Usually this has never happened before. You should really drop it. And so uh, I was just sort of floundering. I, I didn't know what to do in that situation. Um, and so I'm alone. I'm in Oakland. I had uh, developed this habit of, in order to, I don't know, uh, be more serious about exercise, I would take a backpack, put a bunch of weights in it, and then walk, just walk around Oakland for like a couple hours a day. Uh, and at some point I started developing edema. I'd been losing weight as so I'm developing edema, which essentially means your body is filling itself with excess fluid. Mm -hmm. uh, in the morning, I wake up and the edema is flooded in my, my face, my head. Throughout the day, it drains from my head and my face down to my knees and legs. At the end of a day where I have a backpack full of weight and I'm just walking around and I 
uh, I get I would just walk to a random place and then get on a bus to get back home, just find whatever bus I could. Uh, I'm stepping off of the bus at the end of the night and my legs are so swollen with fluid that I can't bend them and I've got the backpack full of weight. So I fall straight off of the bus, bus chin first and hit my chin mm. on a, a curb. It tears my chin open. And the bus driver, to their credit, was like, are you okay? Do you need me to call someone? And I just said, no, I'm fine. While well, I'm holding my chin together. And I, uh, I went back to my apartment. I found a, a nearby neighbor to drive me to an ER. They dropped me in an ER. I'm in the ER. They're, they're clearly concerned about my weight in the ER, but they're more concerned about uh, they can see the bone of my chin through the, the wound. So they're spraying a saline solution into uh, the wound to clean it out. And I can feel it just sort of hit the bone. And I, you know, I've, I've rarely ever lost consciousness, but I, I felt just the that closing in circle of the world darkening down to this focal point. And, and as all of that is happening, and I'm, I feel like I'm about to pass out in this strange ER, uh, it was just a moment of reflection where I felt like I could not think of anything in my life that I'd done right, but I had a and have a younger sister who looked up to me. And it was just a moment where as everything faded and that focal point closes and closes and closes in, the last thing I saw was like the face of my younger th sister and thinking this is the only example I can find of an influence I had that seems to have been positive. Yeah. And it, but if I can do that one thing, I can do something else. Um, so eventually I get out of the ER, I'm stitched up. Uh, I, by the time I get back to my apartment, I think it's, it's about 4 a.m. or something. Yeah, I think it's about 4 a.m. So I'm on the, the West Coast. I call back to my mother who's on the East Coast and she's just waking up. And I tell her that I, I want to come home and I want to try to work on things because I know what I'm doing isn't working. Um, within a few, few days, I, I leave the job. I fly back home. Uh, my mother experiences me with edema, just seeing me wake up with a face full of fluid and seeing the fluid drain down by the end of the day it's a weird and at times it's painful but it's more just awkward and uncomfortable experience of this fluid retention um and she freaks out she tells me you need to go see a doctor and i was like i i think i'll be fine but okay i guess massive edema is something you should be worried about um so i go to my a physician who i'd been seeing before years before and he tells me uh my electrolytes are so out of whack that i need to go to a to a hospital my i think my potassium was 2.1 um and so i i say okay so you're telling me i, I might die and i should go to a hospital i'll go to the hospital go to the hospital i'm there for within the icu for a couple of days uh, and my electrolytes, they normaled out pretty quickly. Within a couple of days, they were back to a fairly, a, you know, reasonably normal level. And I was in a hospital room and 
I still had the, the edema, the, the fluid retention is still there, but things are otherwise starting to improve. And I woke up, so the doctor sent me there on a Friday, uh, by Sunday, Sunday or Saturday evening, I was released from the ICU to uh, a normal medical wing, wing. On Sunday morning, I'm waking up in this, this fairly normal medical room. Uh, I've still got this massive retention of fluid in my face. And I wake up to see my physician sitting next to the bed, just looking over me. And so I sit up and I'm like, hi, what's up? And he said, um, I'm really worried about you. So I've, I've put in the paperwork to have you committed. And I was like, I don't understand. You told me I need to go to the hospital. I went to the hospital. They, they're telling me my levels are normal or are normalizing. And uh, I don't understand why that would be necessary. And he says he doesn't have time to talk about it. So in a, a little bit, a psychiatrist is going to come and explain things to me. Um, so I'm freaking out because involuntary hospitalization is like one of the most traumatic things that had happened to me in my life. And now they're telling me they're going to do it again. And I don't understand why. <clears throat> um, and in, in, in hindsight, now that I have my medical records, uh, that physician had coordinated that with the psychiatrist before telling me I needed to go to the hospital. So as soon as I saw him and he was taking blood to do to check for potassium and sodium, he started coordinating this whole thing. Um, and th like th one of the things I have never really understood about that and that I think is really uh, unfortunate and problematic about this physician is that he had the legal authority to commit me the entire time with it, oh, the way the, the law worked at any point if he was really worried about me my safety he had the authority to do it he could have just signed the form but he didn't sign the form what he did was he convinced me to bring myself to a hospital where two days later he would ha ask a psychiatrist to come down and sign the form and so i just i didn't understand why make it that complicated why not give me I just feel like it's this, a, a bit of decency that if you actually think that is the situation that I'm this dangerous to myself, give me the decency of telling me that and telling me what you're doing. Right. I can't. Right. I can't stop you. Like there's nothing I can legally do to stop you. It's going to happen. So just tell me that. Um. So, at that point, the psychiatrist comes down. Uh, psychiatrist has two forms in his hand. One is a voluntary. One is an involuntary. With him is a social worker. Um, he says to me, either you sign the voluntary or I sign the involuntary. Uh, I'm freaking out. I'm trying to, trying to convince him not to do it, but I'm crying and I'm a mess and I've got yeah. all this fluid retention. It's just, it's not a pretty scene. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I was not getting my point across. Um, so he says he doesn't have time to really talk it out with me. And he hands the two forms to the social worker and he says, if he doesn't sign the voluntary, you sign the involuntary. Uh, so I signed the voluntary knowing, knowing that it would uh, allow, basically make it less likely that I would be f forcibly brought into the psych ward, that I could at the very least go there of my own volition. Uh, and when the psychiatrist did this, I'm in a hospital room and he's the psychiatrist I'm being admitted to. So like he, he is essentially legally uh, forcing me to 
authorize an involuntary detention in his ward so that he decides whether or not I need to be detained. Um, so I'm they put me in a wheelchair because they're worried about, I don't know, they're worried about the fluid retention. Uh, they wheel me into the psych ward and um, and then they keep me there for, for five weeks. It was a, it was a, just a, a jarring and frightening and damaging experience. Um, I, I think this was, all of this was many years ago. Uh, not only was the field of like treating eating disorders really struggling to figure out what to do, but particularly with anorexia, mm -hmm. a lot of clinicians don't know what to do. And so they, they rely on like just generic type of things. Maybe they Google it. Maybe they, maybe they heard something in a class once. Uh, it has progressed a bit since then, but the, the field still, there are a lot of gaps and a lot of clinicians just don't know what to do with eating disorders. But when me particularly, because I was a, uh, because I was a man with an eating disorder, they were also thoroughly confused. They didn't know what to do with that. Uh, and so they're trying to figure out how to estimate meal plans and they're trying to figure out what sort of um, what sort of road to recovery there is for me. They're trying to tell me what the possible risks are. Like I, I have had more than one clinician tell me like, well, you know, the literature says that with your weight and the the, the level of emaciation you had, you're going to, uh, your menstrual cycle is going to stop. And I'm like, yeah, I, I can guess. Like, I don't know why you're telling me this. Like, that's the best they have is like, emaciation will affect your menstrual cycle. I'm like, okay. And that's important information, but I don't know. It's not really what I need to hear. Um, and so, again, there is a mistake where the person doing the intake screws up the calorie level and they, uh, put me on a, a lower intake than I need to be. And then they cap me at a lower cap than I need to be. And I know all that sounds like I'm nitpicking or maybe it's just opinion, but um, I had been in an eating disorder program before where I successfully gained weight within the allotted, like I had two weeks to gain weight. I gained all the weight they expected me to within two weeks. And I know the, cal the caloric plan they had me on in the eating disorder specific program and now I see the caloric plan they have me on in this uh -huh. general psych ward. So I know that it doesn't match. And I know that the one in the general psych ward isn't working the way the other one did. Um, so I try to appeal to the psychiatrist to transfer me back to the eating disorder program. And I'm, my, my pitch is essentially, if you really think I'm a danger to myself and you really think the situation is that dire, then send me to the eating disorder specific program. They know what to do. They, they're fully equipped to do it. And uh, you've seen it be successful already once before. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and his response was like, well, how will, I, how will I monitor you or be involved in your decisions if you're in the other program? And I, my response to him was, that's kind of the point is I don't want you involved in my treatment. And while I don't like the other program, they at the very least will be able to do that part successfully. So like, I don't want you involved. Um, and so he decided not to transfer me because he he didn't understand how I could ask him for a transfer but not want him involved. Um, 
and so then they de- he develops this plan, which is I, I'm I'm still don't fully understand the logic of it. He had me uh, confined to a wheelchair, so if he tell he tells me I have to stay in the wheelchair throughout the day because he believes I'll burn less calories in a wheelchair. If I try to stand up from the wheelchair, they will view that as like non-compliance. And the threat is if this doesn't work, we're going to uh, strap you down and put in a feeding tube, which was not necessary. Um, So I stay in the wheelchair, but they also don't want me eating with the other patients. So there's like a a room, like a general room where everyone eats all of their meals on the psych ward. I'm not allowed to eat meals there, because they're worried that I'm either going to hide food or um, somehow be deceptive. So during every meal, they wheel me out of the general room and put me into a hallway across from the nurse's station. So I have to sit across the nurse's station alone and be monitored. But the nurses are busy. They They don't really have the interest or time to watch me eat food every day. So things would happen like, there were budget cuts, so they combined the, um, they took patients with Alzheimer's, elderly patients with dementia, and they put them on the psych ward. And there was this one elderly patient who would walk past my tray and grab food. Like at one point, there was like a sponge cake, a piece of sponge cake in my tray. She walked past in front of the nurse's room, grabbed it and like shoved it down her pants. And I was, I was just like shrugging my shoulders to the nurses. Do you want to, <laughs> want to step in here? I don't know. Um, the other problem with that was, um, there was no system set up for this this whole me being separate thing. So the the nurses couldn't order my meal with everyone else, which meant that every time there was a shift change and this information wasn't communicated, my meal wouldn't be ordered. So there, there were meal times in the beginning where I was getting no meal and they were telling me, you have to eat this amount of calories. And, I'm t- and my I was actually fighting with clinicians, like as a patient with anorexia and a psych ward, I was fighting with them, telling them, you're not giving me enough calories for one and two you're not giving me meals so i'm scrounging around cupboards finding like little continental packets of peanut butter and little bottles of baby food left over from something and those are the things i'm eating when they're forgetting to bring me meals i eventually uh the head nurse was sympathetic and very acknowledging of the fact that the system was failing and so the thing i worked out with her was uh, we need to like we need to scrap the nutritious plan because it's not it's not going to cut it and it's not working here. What we need to do is pre-order a whole bunch of food from the kitchen. You keep it in the small kitchen area of the psych ward, and any time I need food, I'm just going to go into that small kitchen area and take from this pre-ordered thing. And so I worked that out with the head nurse, and uh, like every day I was taking in calories in excess of what they expected me to, and. Um, as the fluid drains, the psychiatrist is uh, thoroughly confused because I'm losing weight. And so he keeps blaming me for losing weight. He keeps, he has, like, it got just kind of grotesque at times. Mm-hmm. He had nurses, they put in like a sort of a, a cap or a container in the bathroom so that every time I used the bathroom, the nurses would have to check to see what was in there before anyone would be allowed to flush it because they were worried. I've never induced vomiting. And it's just something that people assume I do because I- Sure, sure. Because the diagnosis. So they were assuming I was hiding food and inducing vomiting because I was losing weight, even though the very natural answer to that is 
my metabolism is rising and I'm losing fluid. I've had massive edema for many, many weeks and I'm slowly draining fluid. Like that is the reason why it looks like I'm losing weight. Yeah. Um, but they're freaking out about it and they don't know what to do. Uh, so they keep just threatening me with more restrictions. Um, so that, that, that was uh, the last time I was in hospital. It was, yeah, it was messed up. There was one time where I had uh, a roommate who had a brain tumor. Um, they were just, the psych ward was where they put anyone they didn't know what else to do with. So he had a, he had a brain tumor. Um, he was dying. He was going to die. Uh, so his wife would come visit him. Um, but he wasn't really coherent, and he would just occasionally get really, really violent. So he's, he was, um, he, there were times, like, there was once where I was trying to walk into the room, and he had thoroughly thrashed the room. It's not his fault at all. He has a, yeah. Like, he just needs to be somewhere safe uh, in his last days. And this is where they put him. And, uh, like, I'm in these situations where I, I don't know what to do when the expected thing happens, which is a person with a terminal condition has a violent physical response to that that is in no way their fault and i happen to be the only other person in the room and then one of the other um patients was also with alzheimer's and dementia he was a he was a vet um i think i think it was from world war ii he was a pretty big guy six six foot something probably six two uh and i was confined to a wheelchair and he saw me talking to a young to a young uh woman who was also a patient there and he thought it was offensive, so he like cornered me and he grabbed my wheelchair and he pushed me into a corner. And he's like, he's holding his fist up my to my God. face, like, "Do you think you're a wise guy?" And that, uh, what am I? I don't know what to do in that situation. So it just is a few tense moments of me yelling for a, a nurse and asking for help before they they dragged him away. And uh, all of which is to say, I got through that, and the the way I got through that was. Uh, I had spent so much time fighting myself over almost everything in my life that this psych ward gave me something else to fight against. And that was the only good thing to come of it was that I, I had something to fight for and fight against and I was fighting to get out of there. Um, and then after that, I just... Uh, once I got out, I just did everything I possibly could to avoid being in that situation again. Uh, I avoid physicians whenever possible. I, uh, I've stopped engaging in there. I haven't been to a therapist in probably 15, 16 years. Um, I just tried to stay under the radar for as long as possible. And that was, that was just life for decade or more was if the system notices you this will happen again so be invisible don't don't make any waves don't cause any disturbances uh and so that was sort of the journey of my mental health and the state of my mental health for many years until um right before the pandemic hit I was, I was talking with a friend who I'd known for for many years, um, 
we were just talking about red flag laws and I don't know why it was a random phone call in a way. Uh, and we were talking about mental health and I told, I was saying a little bit about my story and this guy, mm. I, I've, I've known him for 25 years, but I've never gotten into detail about any of it. Like he knows the general, the general strokes of it, but never the details. And so as I started talking to him about it and talking to him about this reality of, I just want to be invisible. I just want to not be noticed. And that's the only thing I know how to do anymore. Um, he's a, he's a sociologist. And his response was, there is a way to understand systems. You just have to ask the right questions. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, we started like doing the basic work to create the committable podcast. And that was the origin of the committable podcast was this, this question of what are the right questions? Mm -hmm. If there, if there is a way to understand these systems, what are the right questions? Um, and then progressively after talking with clinicians and attorneys, a, a lot of uh, mental health focused attorneys, it became very, very clear um, that everything that happened to me is the way the system is structured. And I am incredibly lucky. Police were never involved. Uh, Anorexia is a weird diagnosis where uh, there is no FDA-approved medication for it, so they can't really force medication. And you are expected to make a complete cognitive recovery after a certain amount of time of weight gain and sustained weight gain, as opposed to many other conditions where once you have that condition on your record, they just assume cognitive impairment for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Or it's the easiest thing to, for them to do is just to force a medication because there are allowed medications for it. So in a weird way, I was lucky. And um, I've had conversations with psychiatrists uh, setting up interviews where I had, there was one where I had to go through five, about five rounds of pre-interview conversations because these psychiatrists were worried about whether or not I had the cognitive competence to be able to talk about my story. And my response the entire time was like, I, I, I'm making a podcast about it. Like it's happening whether you want me to or not. So yeah. Whether or not you think I'm competent is not my concern, but the at the end of the day, they were willing to talk with me, and they said the only reason they were willing to talk with me, and they they consulted somebody about it, they consulted some organization, they said the only reason they were willing to talk with me was because I was hospitalized for anorexia, which to me is just a huge failing and problem because the idea that people who have gone through experiences of other diagnoses are less competent than I am is just a a huge example of stigma it's wrong it shouldn't be happening but for whatever reason i was in a position where i was one of the lucky ones and people were willing to talk to me because i didn't have the wrong type of diagnosis and i just sort of really internalized that while there was a a lot of things that i have to wrestle with and reconcile with in my personal life in terms of decisions I've made, in terms of relationship dynamics, particularly after like years and years and years of really struggling with uh, mental health the way I was, like repairing relationships and trying to mm -hmm. uh, heal. There's a lot of things I have to reconcile with. But what happened to me in that system was not my fault. That was the system. That was the way the system was built. And I also don't, I don't blame the vast majority of the people involved because they were just part of a system. And I, I think most people involved in that system didn't know how else to do it. 
they were handed a procedure, they were handed a policy, they were handed a practice, and there was a culture of sustaining those practices. So I think that was, for me, actually, is, is really the real shift in anything related to mental health for me is over the past few years, this systems level view has given me perspective to say that like, whatever individual struggles I am having or have had, the real harm was caused by a system that didn't know how to respond and wasn't prepared and in some ways wasn't designed to really respond to in a way that's healing or treatment. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I mean, so it's interesting that you kind of came into your podcast through your own personal experience, but also you realized that it's a systems approach that is failing um, people like you and just people in general, but, um, we, so I work in suicide prevention as well. And I'm, you know, in the mental health care field and we, um, launched our podcast, uh, not the one that you're on currently, not it's all in my head. This is my personal show, but, um, the organization that I work for, um, launched a podcast that is specifically focused on, examining the systems um, here in South Dakota because we had in all of our conversations that we were having with partners and um, you know different agencies different entities law enforcement etc we were realizing that everyone that we talked to was being failed by the system and we found that that was a barrier and a greater risk of suicide for the people that we serve. And we were like, we have to figure out how we can get to the bottom of this and how we can talk to the other entities that we work with because we are non-clinical. We are education and advocacy focused um, primarily and we do a lot of research. And so we had to figure out how we can take this data that we've been pulling from conversations and from the work that we're doing and we can talk about the advocacy initiatives that we have utilized and the education-based trainings that we've provided to people and how we can take the experiences that have been shared with us to these other entities and agencies that we refer out to and say these are what we are hearing this is the stories that we're hearing this is the experiences that were being shared and it's all coming back down to the system is built and designed and created to not actually help this person that is in need. So it's really interesting that your show is examining the same thing. And honestly, that's why I started listening to your show is because when I was trying to figure out how to host this podcast and I, I was new to South Dakota. Um, you know, I moved here for this job. And so I was like, how do I talk to these people that I don't know? How do I explore this system that I don't know? You know, like I'm from a different state. I'm from not, I'm not from here. I don't know these people. I don't know these agencies. So I started listening to your show because I was like, I have to figure out like what other people and what other systems are, you know, being explored and what questions are being asked because if I'm going to be successful in my role, I need to know what else is out there. So it's really interesting that you're, um, you know, exploring this too. And it's, it's why I've been, you know, an avid listener of your show and really inspired by the work that you're doing and wanted to get you on the show today is because, you know, it, it's just, it's so real to me and it's so close mm-hmm. to home. And while I've not been committed in any way, I have seen my friends and family members and clients be um, committed involuntarily or voluntarily for a range of different things. 
Um, and something that we don't explore often enough is eating disorders. And, you know, there's just not a ton of research and data out there. Um, and so that's, it's just, how do we, how do we work together? You know, all of us to improve mental health care systems across the nation when they have been poorly designed from the start and there's still so much stigma. Yeah. I really, uh, really appreciate a lot of what you you were just saying, because I think it, it really goes to the conversations we're having. Um, we revolve around these systems that are not functioning the way they should. And a lot of that is because policymakers are getting input from their constituents, they're getting input from advocates, and then they're creating laws. And those laws are not being informed or designed by the people, usually, they're not really being designed by the people whose whose real focus it is, is figuring out effective systems. They're just being created to sort of solve a problem. They're being created in election cycles. And so you have these policies and these laws that are created. And the go-to response for most people in public service is to say, well, we'll just like, we'll trust the system. This is what you do when someone is in crisis. Mm-hmm. And it is absolutely true that we need to talk about what to do when someone is in crisis. And I think as a culture, we should normalize having that conversation with the people in our lives. Like absolutely. before we get to a point where I think I have to call 911, I should be talking with my my partner or my friends about, well, what would you want to happen? What would you yeah. need? Or what, we should just normalize that conversation. But the default, is this system that people inherit and they just assume, unless you've experienced it, most people assume, well, this must work because we keep using it. Yeah. And that's a conversation and we're type told of to use it. You know, yes. we're told to trust the process, trust the system, you just do what needs to be done. And we're like, okay, and we just succumb to that narrative. Yeah, and I think that's um that's one of the just really tragic parts about it is the people who you need to listen to to correct these systems are the people who are going through it. And the default cannot be to just trust the clinician's word as absolute, which is not to say that clinicians shouldn't have input. They should. Uh, But the impact is being felt by the people going through it. And that's similar with uh, a lot of policy gets influenced by a lot of really vocal family members, people who've watched someone they love struggle. And that is an important voice to listen to. But at the end of the day, there is a person, an individual who is going through the system and experiencing it. So you do listen to the family, you do listen to the clinicians, but the most important voice is and always needs to be that person who's being directly impacted. So if you want to correct the system, that is the voice you need to elevate mm-hmm. and you need to respect and you need to respect it as a form of expertise because like having when you go through this system when you cycle through it and you've gone through multiple interactions whether or not it's an involuntary commitment even if it's just uh multiple experiences where often the existence of the system becomes a, a tool for people to get to sort of influence your behavior either you do this or we might use that mental health law, which no one really understands and who knows what it does. Like we, a lot of us have interactions with these systems and you need to be talking to the people who are directly affected by it. And that's one of the things that I just, I continually find disappointing is getting into conversations about policy, about mental health law and people continually coming back to this idea of like, 
well, think about what this family member said. And that's, yeah, that's trash. Like listening to family members' stories, I think about the, the family members around me. I will never fully understand the type, some of the pain they went through. But if you're talking about policy and like eroding someone's rights, it is the person who is being aff directly affected by that. Yeah. That is your primary and, and pretty much sole consideration. Yes, we need to think about communities, but really that community impact and attention needs to be pushed and emphasized before a crisis happens. Like if you really want to focus on community and family, give them options to prevent crises from ever happening, mm -hmm. options, options that respect the person's dignity. So yes, we need to talk about systems. We need to normalize all, all of these discussions. Like I have conversations with my partner about uh, what would happen because i'm i'm constantly afraid of some of it happening again of going through the system again so we have sure. we have conversations about what do you do if police show up the door with a mental health warrant or what do you do if i ever am in an er and someone says they want to have me detained for evaluation like they're weird conversations they're uncomfortable often but uh i am really grateful to be with someone who is uh, willing to have those conversations and wants yeah. to have those conversations uh, and not in a way where it's just pity, but it's a way where like we're actually problem solving of, okay, how do we, what is the best way to try and survive these situations with some dignity intact? What do you want? What can we do? So yeah, looking at systems is so important. Oh my gosh. And finding partners who are in that journey with you are is important too. I'm yes. like, where do I find one? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. No, that's, I just, I think you're so right. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting, you know, speaking from experience is the thing that is going to enact change. Um, you know, it's funny. I kind of, I self-identify as an accidental activist. You know, I have always been an outspoken, opinionated, kind of brash human. Um, but I found my way into the activism space because I, I used to be in education prior to working in suicide prevention. And during the pandemic, I lost three students to suicide. And it was all in one year time. Um, and one of the students um, took his life in front of me, I was there when it happened and um, performed first aid and, you know, dispatched 911 and the whole thing. And the whole process from the moment I administered first aid, like witnessed him take his last breath to the follow up and the questions that I was asked and, you know, the testimony that I was asked to give and, you know, talking to law enforcement talking to university officials and administration, all of those questions were so inhumane and the whole process was inhumane. I was not able to seek therapy for three weeks afterwards because there was like, there was a wait list and like I was not prioritized. The story of his, you know, his death was pushed under the rug. There was no like formal statement from um, the, uh, the administration um i was told that i could not talk about it and i could not share that it was a suicide it was you know like when it was formally announced that we ha had lost a student it was announced as we you know we are 
beyond devastated to learn of the sudden passing of blank student. And I was like, we are not living out his legacy. We are not living out my experience as the person who watched this happen and performed first aid as, and I was 20, let's see, I was 24 at the time, 25 at the time. And like who at that age is trained to do any sort of administration of, you know, healthcare and crisis response to a 21 year old, you know, like you, it just, you're mentally not trained, even though I have had that training physically. And like, you know, I know how to respond in crisis. I've done tons of that work, but you're mentally and emotionally not prepared for that. And you're mentally and emotionally not prepared for the trauma afterwards, especially when the system is not asking you the right questions or considering your, your own well-being in that process because they're worried about, you know, making the correct statement or, you know, getting the money situated or, you know, making sure that the family is whatever. But it's like, I found my way into activism because sharing my personal lived experience with that and facing, as someone who has experienced and had suicidal ideation before too, I felt like, wow, this is so easy. Like, look at how easy this was for my student. It would be very easy for me to do as well, you know? And especially when I'm pissed off at the world and I'm pissed off at the people for not treating me or my student correctly, I was like, it would be a really easy solution. And so that's when I really started thinking about how do we change systems? How do we talk to people to actually problem solve rather than just being reactive or reactionary to a crisis or a tragedy. Did anyone offer to debrief with you after that? And, oh, no, and there really, was no, there was no debrief. I think, I mean, that is, that is like such sort of an obvious approach is to, someone should have given you time that was about you, like understanding this was a, a horrible thing that happened and this person and their life needs to be honored but you are also part of that and for mm -hmm. someone someone need to be there within the system someone need to be designated as the person to go over that with you and right. focus on you yeah i received none of that um yeah it was brutal i actually filed a formal complaint against all of the administrators that were working with me during that situation that um crisis that tragedy um, I wrote a letter to the family and apologized on behalf of everyone. Um, you know, I, I left my job. I resigned, you know, I was like this, I, I can't work for a place that's not gonna A, prioritize my students and B, prioritize me as a staff member. Um, and so, yeah, but no, I received none of that. And that's, yeah, it's exactly why I got into this activism space and starting to think about systems and thinking about mental health law and policy and it's why I started working in suicide prevention but yeah there's still a lot of stigma there's still a lot of work to be done and unless we're asking the questions of the people who are living the experiences we're never going to get a change Uh, 
let's end by asking the like podcast question of Mm -hmm. what does sisu mean to you at this moment in time after you have gone through hell and back in your journey um so for those tuning in that don't know what sisu is um sisu is a finnish term that translates loosely in english to guts determination resilience tenacity strength grit etc um it's more of an expression um and it is something that i always live my life with because when we are struggling with our mental health or our physical health or really anything in general how do we um come out of that stronger and better is through our resilience and our tenacity. So Jesse, the podcast question, how are you feeling today? And what does Sisu mean to you in this moment? Well, uh, I have a lot of questions about the terms resilience and grit because the context in which a lot of people use them is within the context of like some uh, some psych- psychology research, particularly Angela Duckworth. And there's interesting stuff there, but a lot of it is based off of finding successful people, mm-hmm. interviewing them and determining what characteristics are shared by successful people, and then labeling, labeling that as resilience or grit. So yeah. I personally rarely think of myself as resilient or having grit. I, because of that context, what I usually think of is that I I survived and that is like, that's really all I need to know. It's not mm-hmm. because I was tougher than the next person. It's not because I am particularly resilient. Um, it's a lot, a lot of it is luck and privilege. And uh, a lot of it is you survive through situations uh, long enough and you figure out a way to adapt. And that's really where I am now is that I'm just continuing to try to adapt to to my reality, which I think mm-hmm. goes back to this question of mental health. What is your mental health journey is it's just a constant adaptation. Like a lot uh, of the struggles don't go away. I become familiar with them. I, I like learn to understand them more. And in that way, the next time I'm faced with a similar challenge, I adapt. But then I'm faced with a new challenge and I'm completely unprepared for it. And then I have to experience that challenge a few times before I learn how to adapt to that. So it's just an accumulation of all these adaptations in a way, uh, these experiences that I can then use as the base for which I uh, can interpret new challenges. So what does Sisu mean to me? Like, I just think about having the the luck and uh, opportunities, I guess, of surviving long enough to be able to try again. I think that's an appropriate answer for your lived experience. And I think that that makes me question resilience and grit too, because, you know, like part of resilience and grit is adaptation and overcoming and being able to bounce back when you've been through tough times. And so like, I just, you just made me think about all of the ways that I have interpreted (laughs) my success and survival. (laughs) Well, well, don't, I don't question your survival, but uh, terms we use. That, that's uh, that's all I'm saying. There are terms we use which have context which many of us don't, often don't realize. Totally, and totally. Like resilience and grit in particular for me, they're often, they've been applied to schools or people have brought them into schools. And I think telling one kid who comes from 
poverty, that they are not displaying enough grit because they don't have the success of another kid who came from a wealthy family or something like that. That's just unfair. And so I think we need to totally agree. reframe some of these and maybe we can reinterpret them and, and own them in a different way. I love that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Keep doing the good work. Keep pushing out episodes of Committable. I love listening. I love seeing them in my feed every week. Um, and uh, before we go, where can people find you? I mean, obviously plug the podcast, but where can people connect if they wanted to you know, get involved with any of your work or just give you a shout out or any of that? Um, you can find Committable wherever you find podcasts. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at CommittablePod. I'm on Facebook as Jesse Mangan. Uh, I don't really have a whole lot of social media uh, uh, expertise, but if you find me any of those places or you can uh, you can reach out there there's all sorts of contact information in the in the podcast so find committable wherever you find podcasts and uh, yeah I look forward to hearing people wonderful well thanks again I so appreciate it um, and enjoy your day thank you you too Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you find your podcasts. It's All in My Head is a member of the Not Today Media Network. You can find us on Twitter at Not Today Network. Make sure that you're following along with me on social media. I can be found on Twitter at All in My Head Show and on Instagram at It's All in My Head Show. Until next time, stay well.